Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. We've got some NBA and some MLB to talk about and whatever else I might happen to have up my sleeve on Episode 7 of The Bridge. Well, happy Sunday, everyone. This, of course, being Sunday, April 26th, 2015. Smiles all around here in northeastern Pennsylvania because it is overcast, cloudy, and a little bit nippy outside. And what more could you ask for as we get ready to enter into the month of May? Just another typical day here in good old NEPA. Boy, I should trademark that or something. That has a nice ring to it. Put it on a bumper sticker or get some money from somebody at least. Lots going on in the wide world of sports. Many things to talk about. I could really dive into the NBA playoffs, but I don't really care yet. I don't know if you guys feel the same way that I do about it, but I'm just not excited. We're kind of in that midway point of sports where, yes, there is playoffs happening in the NBA and the NHL. MLB baseball is in full swing, and NFL fans are getting excited for the NFL draft coming up next week. But for me, and I'm sure for other people, this is always a hard time because we're just kind of getting down still from that NCAA basketball mode. Me, probably a little bit more than others since Duke won the national championship. But in baseball, it's April. You really can't get excited for what your teams are doing yet because, as we know, it is a long, long season. And a team that could be in first place now could be in last place at the end of May. So there's really not much to be excited about if you're, say, a logical baseball fan. But a lot of fans are getting excited already. As an example, New York Mets fans have acted like they've already won the World Series because they're currently in first place. And across the board, there are other teams as well that think, this is their year, and we've finally gotten to where we need to be. And look at all those other teams struggling to find their footing. I mean, it is nice, and the storylines have been good so far, but as far as overall records are concerned, for the majority of the teams that have been doing well and for some teams that are doing poorly, that should change as the season goes on. So I won't get too much into where teams stand and what the World Series is going to look like yet. I think we might be able to put that off until, say, maybe the All-Star break before we start getting too excited for some teams. But I did want to start with baseball, and no, not to talk about the Subway Series. The Yankees, of course, ended the Mets' 11-game losing streak with a win on Friday, but then got shellacked on Saturday, and the rubber match will be held tonight. Should be something that the New York sports teams could get excited about. Both teams entered into this Subway Series in first place in their respected divisions for the first time in forever. But as I mentioned, it's April, and it's really hard to get incredibly excited for a series when... 
the stadium isn't nearly three quarters of the way full. No one really seems to care who's going to win. The Mets fans were obviously more excited than the Yankees fans were because they were on that 11-game win streak. Though they ended up losing, Matt Harvey, the Dark Knight, was able to give them the win on Saturday and pitch lights out in his first ever start at Yankee Stadium. So that was nice to see for them. But again, nothing to get too excited about, at least not yet. I mean, the last time you could really get excited about a Subway Series was probably back in 2000 when it was the World Series, but that's for another day. I wanted to start, however, with something that happened in the beginning of the week, courtesy of Reds first-year manager Brian Price. And if you guys haven't heard of this story or heard of Brian Price, you're at least not alone in one of those things because I had no idea who Brian Price was. I'm still thinking that the Reds were managed by Dusty Baker, but I guess they're not. What can I say about that? Anyway, he had some pretty severe comments to a reporter after the Reds had lost one of their games and had given them an eight-game losing streak in nine games or something like that. They weren't playing good baseball to start the year off, we'll put it that way. So after they end up losing the game, he goes after a Cincinnati Inquirer beat reporter, C. Trent Rosencrantz. And you know you're a pretty decent writer if you refer to yourself by a one-letter word to start your name off. C. Trent Rosencrantz. I don't know what the C stands for. Probably cool or corrupt, depending. Who knows? But anyway, Price rips into this reporter after the game when they're doing their post-game interviews, tears them to shreds in a rant that contains 77 F-bombs. And because there's little children probably listening to this podcast, I won't read that rant for you, but you could look it up, obviously. But Price goes after this guy basically for him accurately reporting the news that their catcher wasn't going to be with the team on that particular day. You know, with social media being as popular as it is, many reporters like to be the first person to tweet out news that this is happening or that is happening and get the latest scoop and be able to give you the information first. And then, of course, if other people retweet that or give that same information and don't quote the first person, the first person gets all pissy and says, hey, I reported it first. How come you're not giving me credit? And it's really kind of been a slippery slope, if you will, as far as reporting is concerned with should people get the credit for something they tweet out? And is it breaking the journalism integrity rules if you just go ahead with the story, even though you just got it from somebody else? So there's really been no rhyme or reason to what people are able to do on social media. But the point of this is, see Trent Rosencrantz, said in a tweet or two that the Reds catcher wasn't going to be with the team for that game because he was injured or something along those lines and he wouldn't be playing with the team. Well, Price did not take kindly for that and basically said, what purpose does it serve for you to tell other teams what's going on with my ball club? Why should they know that a particular player won't be playing in the game? Or who cares if this is happening? You're basically giving away our secrets, is what he was ranting about in his speech. So basically, he doesn't want anyone reporting on the Reds for that particular game. He did, of course, later apologize the next day, but his apology was just for the cursing part of his rant, not so much for the content. He still stands by his comments. He was just sorry that he cursed and said the F word 77 times. Now, what I don't understand here is 
this guy obviously being a first-year manager, but he's been around the game doing different things. I'm not 100% sure if he ever actually played baseball. I think he might be one of those coaches that never played professionally, but is still under a managerial or coaching position. But he's been around the game for a long time, and he knows how these things work. When you're a manager of a ball club, you have to be able to answer for these things. And I think it was Brian Cashman with the Yankees that said a couple years ago that he just assumes that everything that he does is going to be found out by somebody. And everyone knows what they're doing. If they don't know what they're doing, that's better for them. But he just goes about his business that it's no secret, no matter what it may be. I mean, here you've got a reporter doing his job. He doesn't work for the Reds. He happens to work for a newspaper that covers the Reds. But he's doing his job as a reporter, letting people know what's going on with the team and breaking the news and publishing the scoops that may go along with the Cincinnati Reds. That's his job. So you have the manager ripping this guy for doing his job, basically saying that I don't want people to know what's going on with my team until I say it's okay for them to know, which makes absolutely no sense in today's day and age. You can find more information now than you've ever been able to, whether it's via Twitter or Facebook or a team's own website, you can get up-to-the-date news on every team and every player if you do a little bit of searching for it. For him to come out and say that if a player is not playing because he's injured, why should people know about that before the game? Or if I'm not going to start someone, why should another team know that before I give the umpire the lineup card? Unfortunately, Brian Price, it's not 1945 anymore, where you had those beat reporters getting all this information, and if you were able to do that, you were looked at as somewhat of a god, like, oh boy. Frank was out at the bar with Tim last night and they went over to talk to Ted Williams and he told them that he's not playing tomorrow because he just doesn't feel like it. Not like Ted Williams would ever do that, but you get where I'm going. But you're the manager of the Cincinnati Reds in the major leagues. These are things that are going to happen to you every day. Reporters are out there to try and get the information about the team they're covering because that's their job. And if a player's not going to be playing in a particular game, so be it. It's not something that's that detrimental to the team if your backup catcher didn't travel with the team because he stubbed his toe in the closet. That's just part of the game. That's just part of the job. For him to go after this guy with a 77 F-bomb rant is just preposterous. I mean, it's not something he could lose his job over. It's not something he's going to get fined over. But it's got to make you think, if you're a player in the clubhouse, like, why do we want to be playing for this guy? It, it could either get his team very excited, you know, kind of amp them up in a way, or it can make them look around and be like, what's with this guy? Is he a lunatic? Another piece of news relevant to baseball happened on HBO's Real Sports with Brian Gumbel when Chris Rock came on to the show and did a seven-minute speech that focused on why black people have abandoned baseball and why that matters for the game of baseball. Or, as he said to start off his piece, why don't black people like baseball anymore? Now, a lot of this that I'm going to bring up is either semi-quoted or fully quoted by Chris Rock. So it's not necessarily my opinions on the matter, but I want to throw out some of the statistics that he also mentioned in his speech. One of the things that he brought up was he's been a huge baseball fan for his whole life, and you will see him at a lot of baseball games throughout the year when they put the celebrities on TV and that sort of thing. 
So he was a huge Mets fan back in 1986 when the Mets won the World Series and were incredibly good, something that they're, of course, trying to do this year, as I mentioned before. But back then, in the game of Major League Baseball, 20% of the players were African-American. Flash forward to last year when the San Francisco Giants played in the World Series. The San Francisco Giants had zero African-American baseball players on their team when they won the World Series last year. The team they beat to advance to the World Series, the St. Louis Cardinals, also had zero African-American players on their roster last year. I just blew your mind, didn't I? It blew my mind when I heard that. Zero players on either of those teams. And for those games in the World Series and playoffs, the crowds were made up of more than 90% of white people. To go back to that earlier statistic of 20%, currently the number of African-Americans in Major League Baseball now is 8% which is an average of two African-American baseball players on each of the major league teams. So if you think of your favorite major league baseball team, run down the list and try to pick out how many of the players are of African-American descent. There's not many. There's a lot of players from the Dominican. There's a lot of players from Cuba. There's been a lot more players from Japan or China or overseas in recent years. And obviously, Caucasian players. Those seem to make up the majority of almost every team in the major leagues. Chris Rock also went on to say that the game is still old-fashioned and continues to remain stuck in the past. He says that there is white-haired, white-guy announcers, cheesy old organ music, Every team is building a fake antique stadium to remind people of the good old days. He went on to say, black people don't like to look back on the good old days. Baseball wants things to stay how it used to be, which is an interesting take because he does have a point. A lot of stadiums want to keep that lore and rustic look to how the game used to be played. Fenway Park recently went under that huge renovation to change how the ballpark looked and to add on some seats, but they wanted to keep everything basically the way it was back in the days of, say, Ted Williams. Around 2004, I think it was, I was lucky enough to take a tour of Fenway Park, and the seats right behind home plate in the first section there are these wood old seats that are original to when Fenway Park was built. At that time, I was about 6'4", And there was no way I could actually sit into those seats because they were too close together and my knees couldn't bend back that far for me to sit in those seats. I could only go down about halfway and just wait for the tour guide to finish his speech so I could get out of that uncomfortable position and go sit somewhere else. But Fenway can't remove those seats, even though they really serve no purpose anymore as far as comfort and luxury, especially based on how much those tickets probably cost night in and night out. If they were to do that, they would lose out on tens of thousands of seats because the way seats are built now would almost double and triple the space that they have there and they would lose out on seats. So they've just decided to stay how things are. Same thing is happening with the Chicago Cubs. They want to keep that lore of Wrigley Field, keep that old fashioned feeling, one of baseball's original parks. They're going through this huge renovation to get this real big jumbotron out there in left field. 
and they're working on the bleachers to make those a little bit more efficient and more modern. Unfortunately, of course, they're nowhere near done with this project. So when Wrigley Field opened up this year, there was problems with the bathrooms and people had to use beer cups as their own personal porta potties for at least opening night until the next night they brought in porta potties for people that were paying upward of $100 for tickets to use. So it's a pretty difficult balancing act to decide whether you just want to go completely modern like the Miami Marlins have done down in Florida or if you want to keep some of that luster that you used to have at your old stadium and bring it over to the new park like the Yankees tried to do. Another quote by Chris Rock as far as the old-fashioned state of baseball is concerned is he says, When you score in baseball, you better not look happy about it, or a baseball will go whizzing by your head. Of course, regarding when you hit a home run or you may strut your stuff when you score and show up the pitcher or show up the other team, odds are that one of the pitchers on the opposing team is going to throw at you, whether it be your leg or your head or your back, which I don't necessarily mind, but he does have a good point as to, you know, if you flip your bat or you stare down the pitcher after you hit a home run, you're going to get retaliated. And there's been no better example of that than this year's Kansas City Royals, who just seem to be going after anyone and anything who gets in their way when it comes to not agreeing with something they've done. There's been a season's worth of suspensions already handed down to several players on the Royals for either throwing at a guy or throwing haymakers in a scrum or yelling things at opposing batters. They've just been off their wall. I mean, last year, they were the Cinderella story, obviously, getting to the World Series. Now they kind of have that us-against-the-world feeling about them, and they don't want to be crossed by anybody. Kind of like that kid on the recess playground that's finally had enough of being picked last and have the ball thrown at his face in dodgeball. He wants to make a mark now and hang out with the cool kids. Near the end of his segment, Chris Rock says... I care about this as a baseball fan. We don't really need baseball, but baseball needs us. Fact is, Black America decides what's hot and what young people should get excited about. You lose Black America, you lose Young America. He went on to say that Little League participation fell about 20% since 1995, and in that same time period, World Series viewership is down about 50%. And of the people that still watch baseball on TV, five out of six are white, and the average age of those viewers is 53. He closes by saying, black people don't seem to care, but baseball should be terrified. And like I said, he did make some very interesting points regarding the game of baseball in the African-American community. I don't necessarily have any great answers on how that can be fixed, but I think he's right in saying it needs to be fixed. Frank Thomas, a designated hitter who used to play for the Chicago White Sox, came out a couple days after that segment and said that it really has to do with Major League Baseball taking over interest in the inner cities, much like they do in the Dominican Republic or in Cuba or what they'll probably do in Costa Rica once that gets straightened out, where you go in, you give people gloves, you give people cleats, you give people bats, you get them interested about the game of baseball You build academies for them to go to. You focus on their education. You get them involved with the game of baseball. 
And I think that's a good point that baseball should have more of an interest on getting players in these inner cities interested in baseball rather than maybe them being interested in basketball or football to bring baseball back into their lives at a young age and get them excited for that being something that they might want to do when they get older. And speaking of Frank Thomas and the DH position, I just wanted to touch on something real quick that happened in the past couple of days as far as pitchers are concerned. We had the St. Louis Cardinals pitcher Adam Wainwright most likely suffer an Achilles tear after swinging at a pitch and trying to run down the first baseline. He said he turned around and thought he had gotten struck with the catcher's mask which basically means you're done for the rest of the season because your Achilles is broken. We also had Washington Nationals pitcher Max Scherzer injure himself while swinging the bat. I think he hurt his thumb and maybe his finger or his hand, whatever. So he came out and said that he's not too happy that pitchers have to bat. And wouldn't you rather see David Ortiz in the box rather than me like I'm swinging a wet newspaper? And I'm sure with those two injuries coming, we'll soon hear the argument that the National League should get the DH. And I haven't really decided where I stand on that issue. I mean, I'm still under the impression that if you're a Major League Baseball player and you've gone through Little League and Teener League and high school baseball and college baseball, you know how to swing a baseball bat. Once you start playing for the National League, you should start working on swinging that baseball bat a little bit more because you know you're going to have to bat at some point. Now, a lot of people make the argument that it's foolish to not have a designated hitter in the National League because the leagues aren't as different as they used to be when the DH was brought into the American League in the 70s. That was back when teams weren't playing each other until the World Series. Now you have interleague play, and it's not even where there's a month of interleague play. It's whenever we feel like interleague play now. So you end up playing National League teams throughout the season, and it really doesn't have that luster that it once did where it was really cool in the World Series to see the American League team play against this National League team who has different values and different ways of playing the game. Now it's like, well, they've won 10 out of their last 12 against this team in the past two years. Let's see how they do tonight. The opposite of that is if you bring the DH back into the National League, who are you going to get to be DH? I mean, the American League has probably 10 or 12 solid DH players, and I'm sure you could find some others if they were given the opportunity, but if you look at National League lineups, there's a lot of eight hitters that wouldn't be good DHs, and they don't have that guy on their bench that could just come in and be a DH and only bat four times without taking the field. I don't think you would see that power or that slugging percentage that you're expecting to see from a designated hitter like David Ortiz or Billy Butler or guys like Frank Thomas or Edgar Martinez in the National League because they just don't have those types of players. But it always baffles me when these pitchers get hurt from batting or running the bases. You're a professional athlete. What are you doing? You're telling me that guys like Prince Fielder or Pablo Sandoval can round the bases every night and play the field, and you can for three at-bats during a game, two of which you're probably just going to swing through the pitches, and the last one they might ask you to bunt, and you could just jog down the line? I don't understand it. 
But I think it's going to be an argument that just continues to crop up year after year until the National League finally decides, you know what, we're going to get the DH. But don't be surprised if this argument starts coming up again. Don't be surprised if the new baseball commissioner puts this as one of the things on the table for things to change about the game to go along with making the game shorter and more exciting. A DH in the National League might do that. I just don't think it's going to happen overnight. So switching gears real quick to the National Football League, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that the NFL draft is coming up this weekend, which also coincides with the Floyd Pacquiao fight, which should have probably happened five years ago. So it should be an exciting weekend as far as that is concerned. I don't plan to bore you with who everyone is going to take in the NFL draft. I just wanted to mention a couple points on the NFL 2015-2016 schedules, which were released earlier in the week. There's a couple interesting games that will come up throughout the 2015 season that I just wanted to touch on here, one of which involves Peyton Manning of the Denver Broncos, who is expected to become the NFL's all-time passing leader at some point this season, should he remain healthy. And that could actually happen in Week 9 when Denver visits the Indianapolis Colts, of course a franchise Peyton Manning played for in his first 14 NFL seasons. Coming into the season, he'll need 2,148 passing yards to break Brett Favre's record of 71,838. Memorize those numbers for some fun bar facts when you're trying to pick up a woman for the night. Anyway, Manning has averaged 272 yards per game since entering the league, which if he kept up at that rate would be probably week nine when he would be close to breaking that passing record. If he starts off very hot and Gary Kubiak decides to be a pass-first type team, He could break it in week eight when Denver plays the Green Bay Packers, which of course is a rematch from Super Bowl 32 in which Denver won 31-24. And I mentioned Super Bowl rematches. There's actually several times throughout the season when teams will be playing that once played in a Super Bowl, which is a slight way to commemorate Super Bowl 50, which will be happening in February of next year. Now, if Peyton doesn't break that in week eight or week nine, he will have an opportunity to do so at home in week 10 when Denver hosts the Chiefs. Another game of interest will be in week six. We'll have a little rematch for the deflate gate game when the New England Patriots, the defending Super Bowl champions, take on the Indianapolis Colts. As far as our across-the-pond games, we will have the Dolphins as one of the teams playing in London this year, but unfortunately for them, that gives them a pretty brutal first-half schedule with seven of their first nine games on the road. Now, five of their last seven games will be at home, but that's going to hurt them if they don't get off to a pretty solid start having to play all those away games. We could also be in for an exciting week one matchup. I'm sure this wasn't on purpose at all. The Tampa Bay Bucks are hosting the Tennessee Titans. And even though those teams combined for four victories last season and in no way, shape or form would make for an exciting game, those two teams could perhaps take quarterbacks with the first two picks of the NFL draft on Sunday with Jameis Winston of Florida State perhaps landing with the Bucks and Marcus Mariota of Oregon possibly landing with the Tennessee Titans. Well played, NFL schedules. Well played. 
Now, that's not going to be a nationally televised game, thank goodness, but that doesn't mean that Red Zone isn't going to show you every play possible when one of them drops back to pass that day, should it happen that way. So there's one to look out for. And as far as Rex Ryan is concerned with the Buffalo Bills, the Bills have quite the rough start to their season with Rex Ryan. They're going to play the Colts, then they're going to travel to New England, and then they're going to travel to Miami. But that rematch against the New York Jets, I believe, happens in Week 10, which is kind of far down the line as far as the schedule is concerned. You might think that they would want to do that earlier in the season because at that point, playoff implications might be out the window for both teams for all we know. But it still should make for an interesting game when he comes back to New York. And lastly, the proposed Los Angeles teams, the three teams that might end up moving to California to start a new We have the St. Louis Rams, the Oakland Raiders, and the San Diego Chargers all in the running to perhaps move to Los Angeles to start their franchise over again. All three teams will be on the road in the last week of the season. So a little dig from the NFL there. One, for moving to another city, perhaps. And two, for them thinking that the three teams will probably not be in the run to make the playoffs. As far as the NBA is concerned, there's really no use in going into the current or finished playoff series. We can go more in-depth next week when the series are more set in stone. I'll just rattle off a couple of the numbers here on where we currently stand in the first round of the playoffs. Over in the West, we had the Golden State Warriors end up sweeping the New Orleans Pelicans for nothing. Memphis Grizzlies are currently leading their series 3-0 over the Portland Trailblazers, so Memphis will most likely be the opponent of Golden State. The Spurs and the Clippers have the most exciting series out of all. Tied up at 2-2, the Clippers were able to win today after falling down 2-1 in their series, so we know that will go at least six games. Dallas was able to take one from the Rockets, but still trail 3-1 against Houston. So with Houston in control to that, they will probably move on to play the winner of the Clippers or Spurs. Over in the East, the Hawks are leading the Brooklyn Nets in their series 2-1. They've struggled at times in that series, but I think they'll come away with that win and would advance to play the Washington Wizards, who swept the Toronto Raptors in four games and made the Raptors look like they had no reason being in the playoffs. In the last two series, the Bulls currently lead the Bucks three games to one. The Bucks were able to steal one from the Bulls, but still trail off obviously by two games Chicago in control of that series and should move on if they did they would move on to play the Cleveland Cavaliers who finished off the sweep of the Boston Celtics today unfortunately for them Kevin Love did suffer a separated shoulder and should be out for at least two weeks but I'll have more information about that in next week's podcast speaking of next week we'll wrap things up for now You can listen to this podcast and previous podcasts on my website at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You could also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes on my website. You can also listen to this podcast on the Stitcher and SoundCloud apps on your phone or tablet. Next week, we'll take a closer look at the second round of the NBA playoffs. 
We'll talk a little bit about the NFL draft. We'll go over the Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao fight, and we'll see what's going on in the world of baseball and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Sports.